pretty popular. People have bumper stickers on their vehicles. And while some bumper stickers are humorous, others are trying to teach us theology. They're trying to teach us theology with statements like coexist. God is my co-pilot. Don't judge. He who dies with the most toys wins. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Good without God. Now, there's no question that these bumper stickers are trying to teach us theology, but is it good theology? That's what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. We're going to look at some of these bumper stickers and we're going to examine them in light of Scripture. So we're starting today with this. Now, raise your hand if you have seen some variation of this bumper sticker at some point in your life. Pretty common, pretty popular bumper sticker. Now, the thought process behind it is is what we would call relativism. And relativism essentially says there is no absolute standard for right and wrong. There are really no absolute standards at all. And there are two primary ways that relativism is seen in our culture. One is in what we might call moral relativism. And that is that morals fluctuate. They're not standard. There's no absolute right and wrong. And then in a lot of ways, a culture determines what is morally right and what is morally good. So a culture could today determine that one thing is morally right. And then next week, the majority of the culture changed their mind and the morals would shift. Another way that relativism is seen is in what I would call ideological relativism. There is no one standard for right or wrong. Right. That just because um, Christianity is right for you, why well, doesn't make it right for me? Taoism may be right for me or New Age mysticism could be right for me. And my choice, it is every bit as valid and every bit as right as your choice. Right. There is no one religion that's right or one truth that's overall. All are either equally good or they're equally bad. But you cannot say that one is better than another. Now, it is ideological relativism that's behind this sticker. Right. Between all of the the Taoism, Jewish, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the New Age, all of those are up there and expressed it way to say we're all equal. We should just get along. Don't try to push your beliefs on me. I won't try to push mine on you. We are all equal paths for life, morality, guidance, for light, however you want to define that, spirituality, and your connection to the eternal. Now, this mindset is very common in our culture, but it poses a problem for those of us who would say we are disciples of Jesus Christ. For Scripture teaches the doctrine of the uniqueness or the exclusivity of Christ and declares that it is an essential doctrine. And that does make ideological relativism of the coexist bumper sticker problematic for us as Christians. Now, if we would tweak our wording a bit to say that Jesus is a way to God and a path to salvation and not the way, well... That would be okay. Everyone would be okay with that. But we can't do that. At least not and be honest with Scripture, right? Because Scripture says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's Jesus. Now, that's not an interpretation of Jesus' words. That's not somebody else. That That is Jesus. And Jesus is pretty clear. There is a way to God the Father. There is a a path and a truth, but it is Him. And that no one ever 
makes it to life, truth, salvation, or God the Father, except through Him. He claimed to be the one true path. The one true truth. The one that everything rose and fell upon. Well, that's Jesus' claim, but what about those that came after Him? Those that that He discipled? Did they understand that this is what Jesus was saying in this passage? Well, it seems that Peter did. Peter said in a sermon, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has come the chief cornerstone. And note this, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter's words are pretty important on this because it is common in our day in many of the skeptics and many of those who would criticize Christianity for our our exclusivity of Christ's doctrine to say that the idea that Jesus was unique as a way of salvation, as the way of salvation, he was exclusive, that it didn't come along in the times of the apostles. That this was something that was decided hundreds of years after the time of the last apostle dying. And yet here we see Peter probably weeks at the most a couple of months after the ascension of Jesus Christ saying that there is no salvation in anyone but Jesus. So right from the beginning. So Jesus claimed to be the only path to heaven. The earliest recordings of his disciples speaking record Jesus As the only path to heaven. But it wasn't just Jesus and it wasn't just John or it wasn't just Peter. It was also Paul who said this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one God. There's not a plurality of gods. There's one God and there's one way to get to him. And he defines exactly who that one mediator is. It is Jesus Christ. In case any of his readers were wondering. Paul declares that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Folks will not be saved because they're moral. And they'll not be saved because of baptism. And they'll not be saved because of church membership or kindness. Or through any of the groups listed on the coexist bumper sticker. They'll only be saved through faith in Jesus. The Apostle John, he also records Jesus as the only way. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And And this life is in His Son. Now notice the wording. This is pretty plain. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very clear language. That everything rises and falls on Jesus. Eternal life, abundant life, salvation, forgiveness of sins. It's all found in Christ. And if we if we have Jesus, we have all of that. But if we do not have Jesus, we don't have any of that. Regardless of our morality, regardless of our kindness, regardless of. If we find our path to light in one of the other 
expressions of the coexist bumper sticker. It's all found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Now, there are many more passages of Scripture that we could look at, and they would all say the exact same thing. This is not a, a few isolated verses taken out of context. This is just the totality of the New Testament testimony is that there is one God and one path to that God, and that is Jesus Christ alone. There is no way for us to take Scripture seriously and embrace the mindset of the coexist bumper sticker. There is no way for us to take Scripture seriously and believe that people who reject Christ for whatever reason make it to heaven or know God. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we cannot embrace the ideological relativism of the coexist bumper sticker. Now we might say, why? Clearly, that's what Scripture says, but why does Scripture say that? Well, let me explain that this morning in three ways. First, that we are born in sin. Why is Jesus the only way of salvation? To understand that, we have to understand what Scripture teaches about the depravity and the sinfulness of man. To look at that and to understand that, we have to look at the, the whole of redemptive history. If you've been in church very long, you've heard the creation story that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And as a part of God's creative process, he created a man and a woman and he put them in a garden paradise called Eden. And they were to tend and keep it. Now, all of their needs were met. They had near perfect communion with God. They had a purpose for their lives. They had no shame in their relationship with one another. Everything was perfect. And they were allowed to eat freely of anything that was in the garden except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told them that on the day that they ate of that tree, they would surely die. Now, things rocked along pretty well. Until Satan came along and tempted Eve. And he tempted her in some specific ways. He, he cast doubt on God's word. Has, has God really said? Then he contradicted God's word. Oh, you'll not surely die. And then he convinced Eve that God was trying to keep them from something good. God knows that in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will be like God. Now, this isn't a part of the message, and it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but let me just say quickly. Anything you read, hear, or study that casts doubt on God's Word, contradicts God's Word, and tries to convince you that God is keeping you from something good, be assured that is satanic in origin and is not in any way God, godly, right, or true. Now, Adam and Eve believed Satan's lies. They ate of the fruit, and in that moment they died spiritually. Now, since humans are created in the image of God, we are not just a physical body. We are three in one as God is three in one. We are body, soul, and spirit. The body is what it sounds like, our physical body. The soul is basically the will, the emotions, and the intellect. And then there's the spirit. The spirit of man is the part of us that can know God, love God, and communicate with God. 
That is the part of Adam that died when he sinned against God. Adam and Eve died spiritually. And from that moment on, every human born was born spiritually dead, separated from God and resistant to the rule of God. They, they passed on their sinful nature, their spiritual death, Romans 5 and 12 tells us. That's why we don't have to teach children not to obey the rules. Right? We have to teach them to obey the rules. That's why in many of us, if someone says don't touch that, the overwhelming desire is to touch it. But that's not just a character issue. That is our sinful nature waging war, trying to control our lives. And our sinful nature not only wants to control our lives, but it even resists the the rule of God. When God says thou shalt not. There is something within sinful man that says, oh, I shall. And I will enjoy every moment of what I do. No one will tell me what I can or cannot do. Not even you, O Lord. This spiritual death, this depravity that we were born into, it has serious consequences. Turn to Ephesians 2, page 895. And we'll look at, we're going to spend most of our time in Ephesians 2 today. Though not as an in-depth exposition of the passage, unfortunately. Ephesians 2 and 1. And you who were dead in trespasses and sin. Right, now note a couple of things here. First, note that he says, you who were dead. Right, apart from Jesus Christ, we are all spiritually dead. That's the idea. That death that Adam and Eve died at sin, they have passed along and we are naturally dead in trespasses and sin. Now, the fact that we are dead is significant because there is a teaching in our day that says as as humans, we are sin sick, but we are not sin dead. In this view, humanity is not well and we may well be mortally sick, but the situation is not hopeless. Since we are only sin sick and not sin dead, there is hope that we can take care of ourselves. In this view, we can make changes that would fix the problems in our life. We could turn over a new leaf. We could become a more moral person. We could embrace one of the coexists and we could become a religious person. We could educate ourselves. We could do any number of things and turn ourselves around. But Scripture puts a full stop on that mindset by saying man is not spiritually sick. Man is spiritually dead. We are sin dead. And as sin dead, we are unable to change our circumstances. Romans 5 and 6 declares that we are helpless, without strength, to do anything about our spiritual condition. And because we are dead and unable to do anything, here's what happens. In which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just like others. 
The phrase course of this world refers to the natural way of life for people who are dead and who are rebelling against God and resisting his rule over their lives. In a lot of ways, they cannot not walk in this way. A dead person can't change their circumstances. A dead person tossed in a river cannot go against the current. A spiritually dead person cannot not walk according to the course of this world. When someone resists and rejects God's rule and reign over their life, they will walk a certain path for their life. And it's a path that, the, that goes according to the course of this world. It leads them away from God and deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness. Now, the path isn't the same, though, for everyone. Now, for some, this path will lead to a life of debauchery. It will lead to a life of deep sin that thumbs its nose at the, the morality of Scripture and the need for Jesus. It is a path that just says, I will do what I want to do. I will live how I want to live as long as it pleases me. That is exactly what I will do. But that's not the path everyone takes when they walk according to the course of this world. For some, the course of this world, it takes a path of morality. It takes a path of, of what the world would define as goodness. It'll cause them to be kind. It'll cause them to be generous. It'll cause them to be a faithful spouse, a good parent, an excellent employee. But it will also cause them to say, I do not need Jesus. I am good without God. Others will seek peace, righteousness, spirituality through the other spiritualities in the coexist bumper sticker. But make no mistake, all are equally disobedient to God. Person living a life of debauchery is absolutely dead in sin, walking according to the course of this world, disobedient and rebellious against God. And the good moral person is dead in sin. They're walking the course of this world and they are rebellious against God. And those of any other spirituality or religion other than faith in Jesus Christ are spiritually dead, walking according to the course of this world. And they are rebellious against God. And that rebellion, that continued rebellion has a consequence. Verse three. Among whom we also once conducted ourselves. So we all live this way. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And notice this. Were by nature children of wrath as others. Children of wrath. So it's important to understand that one of the reasons that we need Jesus. Is that there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day when all people will stand before a holy God. And they will give an account of their lives. And on that day, there is one thing that saves from the wrath 
and the judgment of that day. And it's not morals. And it's not religion. And it's not an abundance of happy debauchery. It is very simply faith in Jesus Christ. And that alone. We live in a country where the last estimate I saw, roughly 80% of Americans claim to believe in God. And yet they do not live as though God were real or significant in their lives. Outside of those who claim to believe in God, a large majority do believe that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. And all of that sounds fairly good. The problem is that for the vast majority of Americans, heaven is the default eternity for all people. And in order to keep from going to heaven, you have to do something really bad. You got to be a murderer or a molester or a rapist or some other hideous, horrible, debauched person. But normal, everyday people, as long as they're basically okay, they're going to heaven. The problem is Scripture teaches the exact opposite. Scripture teaches that all people by nature, right, by nature. So that's as a part of of who we are apart from Jesus are by nature the children of wrath. But the default eternal destiny is not heaven. It is hell. And only faith in Jesus changes that default setting. Nothing else can take someone from being a child of wrath and make them a child of God. So understanding why Jesus is the only way starts with understanding the fall of mankind and the consequences that it has had on every one of our lives, on the world around us. We are all born spiritually dead. Resistant to the rule of God. And this results in us taking actions that God calls sin. Which leads to the second reason Jesus is the only way. We sin by choice. You see, we are not only born in sin, but we actively sin. We, you could say we are all double sinners. Because look at verse 1, that, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, while those two words are similar, they're slightly different. Trespass is a willing violation of God's righteous standard. Right? So it it is knowing God has said, don't touch this and going, I'll do what I want. I'll do what I want. And then sin carries with the idea of missing the mark. (coughs) Picture a, a marksman. Shooting at a target. Aims for the bullseye. Does everything he can to, to hit the bullseye, but hits just left of center. He tried to hit what was right, but, but fell short of the target. And there are times in our lives where we, we try to do what God would have us to do, but still we fell short. So in all of our lives, these two things exist. In all of our lives, there have been times where we said, I know what the standard is, but I will do other 
And there have been times in our lives where we said, I'm going to try to do the standard, but we just fell short of meeting that standard. (coughs) We have missed God's mark. We have violated his standard, which does bring up the question, what what's the standard? Is it is it by community consensus? Do we come in a business meeting and we vote on what the standard of right and wrong is? Do we let the culture around us, do they determine what's right and wrong? Or, or is there some sort of an absolute, something that stands for all of time and says this is right and this is wrong? Well, Scripture teaches us <coughs> there is an absolute. Here's what sin is. Sin breaks the law. That's essentially what sin is. Sin is breaking God's law. God's law essentially refers to the Ten Commandments, which make up God's absolute standard of right and wrong. If we had time and we don't, we could look at all ten. And what you see when you study the Bible, remember Jesus said, what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Seconds like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he said, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. His point was, That if you love God, you'll do all the things in Scripture, Old and New Testament, that declare your relationship to God. And if you love people, you'll do all the things in Scripture that tells you how to treat other people. Right. So that's the standard that we're to to love God, to do his will and, and everything. All of the moral commandments in Scripture ultimately flow out of the Ten Commandments. They're an application of it in one way or another. And we don't have time to look at all ten, but I just want us to look at a few of them. Right. So the first one, you shall know the gods before me. Now, this one sounds easy enough. Right. Because I've never worshipped Baal. I've never Went to a mosque. I've never worshipped a law. I've never, I've never done any of that stuff. So, whoo, glory. I've kept that one. Ah, oh, but that's just not that easy. See, there is in the law, the, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law are the exact words, but the spirit are, are what it intended to communicate to us. Right? So, for you shall have no other gods before me. That doesn't just mean don't worship Bell or a law. Certainly, it means that. But to have kept this law. What I would have to have done was to make God the number one priority in my life all the time. Right. So and not just in like my words. Well, God is number one. Right. But God is number one in, in my words, in my attitudes, in my actions, in my reactions, in my values and my priorities. <clears throat> I could never at any time have placed me over God's will. I can never at any time have placed another person over God's will. I would have always have had to have done everything God wanted. Every moment of every day, my entire life. And if you can say that you have done that, well, you you may well have kept that commandment. But I really don't think that any of us could say that we had done that perfectly. Or here's another one that sounds easy. You, You shall not murder, right? I got this one lined up because I ain't never killed nobody. That's easy enough. But Jesus, he comes along and he he messes with us with his spirit of the law. Right. He says in the Sermon on the Mount (coughs) that you've heard it was said by them of old, you shall not kill. But I, I say unto you that if you're angry with someone without cause, you despise someone or you call them a fool. That's the spirit of the command. 
So to have kept this law, not only could you not have murdered someone. But you couldn't have ever gotten angry with someone without a really good reason. That and a good reason. Then they had 25 items or less. 25 items, the 20 item or less line. A good reason isn't that they pulled out in front of you at a stop sign. A good reason isn't that the referee made a bad call at your child's ball game. None of those are good reasons. And not only could we have not gotten angry with someone without reason, we could not have despised someone in thought or speech or action. Again, anyone, not just not just those who don't despise me. Well, I've never despised my wife and my kids and my mom and my dad. No, mercy, it's not that easy. Anyone. I mean, if I was going to meddle, which I'm not, but if I was a meddling preacher, I would say we we've never despised people of the opposite political party. But I'm not going to meddle that way, so I won't go there. But we can't have ever despised anyone. Or really cursed them as a fool. To call them a fool was more than to say they were an idiot like we would say. A fool in the Old Testament was someone who didn't believe in God. Psalm 14 and 1. To call someone a fool was essentially to say, I really hope you go to hell. It was to condemn them. So have you ever been angry without cause? Have you ever... Despise someone in thought, speech, or action, or attitude? Have you ever condemned someone? Probably hadn't kept this commandment thing because you would have had to have done those things perfectly always. And then one last one, because time's running out. But you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now the broadest understanding of the law is it's a law against lying. And this would include little white lies. This would include twisting the truth, telling half-truth, telling gossip. That we knew probably wasn't true. Maybe weren't sure it was true. Intentionally seeking to discredit someone through falsehood or, or slander against them. So to have kept this law, you would have had to have not once in your life ever told a lie, half truth, passed on gossip you weren't sure about, or intentionally tried to discredit someone through falsehood and, and slander. So how did you do? On the abridged Ten Commandment test. Now keep in mind, it's a, it's a pass or fail test, right? So even if you only violated one, you flunked. You ever take a, those of you in college, you ever take a pass or fail class? Man, those are horrible, right? It don't matter. You make a hundred on everything, you pass just as good as the guy who makes a 72. Right? But you either pass or you fail. There's no in between. And that's the way the law is. You either score a hundred and pass, or even if you score a ninety, you fail. James says if you break one of the laws, it's as if you broke them all. It's not the size of the violation that makes us guilty and makes us the children of wrath. It's it's the violation itself. And and we also have to understand that a perfect score is not just like one really good day, right? Just this one day. I was really close to Jesus and somebody jerked out in front of me and rather than honking my horn, I said, bless them, Lord, help them to have a great day. And, you know, somebody else happened and and I could have, oh, I knew some juicy gossip, but oh, bless God, I'm not going to tell it today. We had just one day and on this day we did everything right. That's not having passed the test. That's passed it one day. But if you ever failed it at any day, there's no making it better. You've got a perpetual F. And it cannot be undone on your own and our own strength. To have perfectly kept the law would have to have kept all ten commandments, the spirit and the letter, 
time we were born to the time that we died. Never once have a bad day. Never once be off even the slightest. We've all sinned. We were born in sin. And we have chosen sin. And that leaves us in a bad way because that leaves us by nature. The children of wrath. So what's the solution? Well, we need Jesus. You know, if Ephesians 2 stopped at verse 3, it would be the most depressing chapter in the Bible. But look at verse 4. But God. I mean, that's just a great thing to see right there, isn't it? But God. I mean, we know from experience when someone says, but, they're about to change everything they've said before, right? You, you've had this experience. You've asked somebody for help. Hey, could you come by my house and help me move my piano? I would love to, but what you know is they're not going to, right? Or someone comes to you and says, you know, I love you. But what are they about to do? They're about to say something bad about you, aren't they? Right. I I think I love your kids, but they're about to say something bad about your kids. Right. Anytime someone says something positive and throws in a but, everything's about to change. Well, that's what happens here. But God, everything is about to change. Why is everything about to change? Why is the but God there? Because God is rich in mercy. That God is rich in mercy means that His mercy overflows in abundance over to us. The overabundant mercy of God is seen in two ways. First is that He he withholds the judgment that we deserve for a period of time. I mean, think about it. If, If the wages of sin is death, then a merciless but just God would judge us the moment that we sinned. And yet the psalmist says we have not been punished according to our iniquities as they deserve. Why is that? Why are we still here and alive today not being objects of God's wrath with opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel? Because a merciful God is is withholding his judgment. One of my favorite pictures in the Old Testament is how often God looks for a reason not to judge people. But the, the picture so often is that God is angry and hateful and just looking for a reason to cast people into hell. I say the opposite's true. I say God is looking for a reason not to cast people into hell. How many times in the Old Testament did he look for someone to be standing in the gap? For the nation of Israel. Saying, if I could find someone to be standing in the gap, I would not have judged them. But finding no one. Right? You're alive today. You're not suffering the wages of your sin. I'm alive and not suffering on the wages of my sin. Not because we're good. Because God is merciful. And He is holding back the judgment. But not only does he hold back the judgment, he is also reaching out to to draw us out of the path of judgment. He is trying to, to draw us away from where that's going so that we can come to the way of salvation. But imagine if God's judgment is falling down from the wall. Right there, and and it's going to hit right on this side. Picture God then standing here with this hand outreach, going, grab my hand, take my hand. And he's pulling people as fast as he can over here so he can pull them out of the way. Now the day's going to come where he's going to let this go. 
And He is going to let judgment fall and it roll over everyone that has rejected His outstretched hand. But for now, while we're alive, there is mercy. We are standing in a day of grace and mercy where God says, come to me. Move out of the way. God's mercy is because he loved us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. How great that is. How great it is that God has loved us. But I'm afraid that in our day we have lost the wonder. of The fact that God loves us. And that's because I, I believe we do not understand the depths of our own depravity. We hear that God loves us and we think, what's not to love, boy? Right? I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I got a lot going for me. What is not to love? Boy, when we look at that love in light of verses 1, 2, and 3, and, and our rebellion against God and our resisting His rule, that's oh, amazing, right? That's amazing. We have pushed back and we have rebelled and we have told God no and we have thumbed our nose at Him and we have lived how we wanted and yet He has kept us alive. He has given us mercy in another day and another opportunity to take His hand and be pulled out of the way of wrath. Not because He has to. Oh, if there is one truth I want our world to understand is that God does not have to do this. There is no higher power than God that forces him to show us mercy. He does it of his own volition because he loves us. God could right now remove his hand of mercy from any one of our lives. And it would be a just action of a sovereign God. The fact that we live today and we live tomorrow. It's mercy, grace. Of God because he loves us. When we thumb our nose at God's mercy, we reject his outstretched hand. We essentially tell him that what Jesus did on the cross was just a dumb waste of time. We did not need his son to die in our place. And sadly, we have all done that time and time and time again. Aren't you glad God's not like us? Because if one of my kids died for someone else, and they did not live eternally grateful for that, there would be serious problems from me on that. There would not be mercy and multiple opportunities. There would be wrath. There would be judgment. There would be condemnation. How loving is our God to keep holding out His hand to pull us out of the way of judgment when we've slapped at it. We've pushed it away. We've spit on it. We've said, go. Go away. 
God's love is seen on the cross. That is the great demonstration, guarantee that God has loved us. See, Jesus didn't die as a martyr for the cause. He didn't die because he made the wrong people angry. He died because of your sin and mine, because the wages of sin is death. And every every sin deserves the wage. The punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God, it's not just physical death. It's eternal death. Eternal death is to be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Revelation calls that the second death. Have you ever read Luke 19 about the rich man that went to hell or Revelation about the lake of fire? Smoke of the torments rises from day after day. The worm dies not. Flames are never quenched. They're not pretty happy pictures. There's no, well, I'll go have a party with my friends. It's horrific. And it should be. The horrors of hell show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. And Jesus, he took that wrath in our place. On the cross, you could say he he endured hell in our place. And he endured it until he cried out, it is finished. He was taken down. He was laid in the tomb. When he said it is finished, he meant the penalty for sins had been fully satisfied. Now forgiveness of sins was possible. And he did that just because he loved us. Jesus is the only way. Because he is the only one who died to pay the penalty for sins and rose again. No other religion has an answer for the depravity of man. Christianity does. That answer is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can offer salvation and eternal life. That's why, as disciples of Jesus, we cannot, cannot embrace the bumper sticker theology of coexist. Other religions may seem to offer salvation and life, but it is only an illusion. In the end, it brings death and destruction. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus gives life. Only Jesus forgives sins. Only Jesus connects us to the Father. Only Jesus. Verse 8, we see that this is by faith. For grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's faith. That's how we receive all of this. But it's a very specific sort of faith, right? It's not a, a faith that there is a God out there somewhere. The demons believe that. It's not a faith that Jesus was real. The demons believe that. It is a faith that is specific and personal. It's specific because it's in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's personal because you must have it. You 
must believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You must believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only hope for salvation that you have. If you are saying, I am saved because I do believe and I am a basically a good person, you are not saved. If you are saying, I'm saved because I believe and I've been raised in church, you are not saved. If you are saying, I'm saved because I believe and I walk the aisle and knelt at an altar. You are not saved. If you are saying, I'm saved because I believe and I went under the water. Hallelujah. You are not saved. Not of works. See, we have nothing to boast about. When we stand before the Lord in heaven, we will say it is by your grace, by your mercy, and because of your blood, I am here. I added nothing to it but sin and rebellion and constant failure. If you are saying I am saved by faith plus and whatever you want to add, you are not saved. In order to embrace the salvation that Jesus gives by faith, you must let go of any self-righteousness that you hold to. Any self-justification, any anything that you add to your life, to your eternity that makes you saved. And you must say it is Jesus and Jesus alone. And when you do that, everything changes. God brings life where there was once death. God gives victory where there was once defeat. God enables us to know Him, to love Him, to communicate with Him, and experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore that only come from His presence. And that is what God offers today to each and every one of us through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you received this salvation today? I'm going to ask you to stand.